Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The Last Lumberjacks. Memories from a Northeastern Chinese logging camp. Written by Yu Guangyi. Published in The World of Chinese. Read by Anthony Tao. My name is Yu Guangyi. I am a filmmaker. I was born in 1961 and grew up in a small forest farm under the Shanhe Twin Forestry Bureau in Wuchang County, Heilongjiang Province. The Songhua River has a major tributary called the Lalin, which originates in my hometown. People say that the best Wuchang rice grows in water from the Lalin River and black earth from Changbai Mountain. That was the soil in which I also grew up. In the summer of 2004, a classmate from my hometown came to visit me and told me that the hundred-year-old practice of logging, which started in 1895, was about to end. The government was about to make it illegal to cut trees. This made me feel that someone ought to make a record of the last loggers. I had been away from home for 18 years. Both of my parents had already passed away. When I arrived in my hometown, I found it intimately familiar, yet also estranged. As I started filming in a field of snow that didn't quite reach my knees, I said to my parents, Dad, Mom, I've returned to make a documentary about the lives of people on the mountain. Please bless and protect me, and make sure I do it well. On December 16, 2004, the last logging teams set off for the mountain. I followed them into the dense forests, and we spent the whole winter eating and sleeping together in a shack. The loggers were full of reverence for nature, because felling trees on the mountain was full of dangers. Every year, on the day that they set off for the mountains, the loggers hold sacrificial ceremonies. They find a thick tree and peel away its bark, then use charcoal to write Seat of the Mountain God on the trunk. They bury a pig's head, place incense and fruits over the spot, and pray. In a high and cold location, facing bitter conditions, a sense of veneration emerges in people. Unlike city folks, who are overconfident, who overestimate the power of humans, Loggers have created their own unique way of life in that extraordinary environment. They consult a fortune teller to find out which days are the best for going up and down the mountain. Once you're in the mountains, there are mountain rules to follow. Some sayings are taboo. For example, you should never say, be careful of accidents, but instead use a euphemism like, take care. You shouldn't sit on the stump of a tree that has been felled because they believe that is the mountain god's dining table. Putting your rump on it is disrespectful and will bring you misfortune. 
You must not harm wild animals, because up there, there is no difference between the animals and themselves. They are all weak and small. Their favorite moment of each day is when they get to drink. The most anticipated event was when I went up the mountain, because I would bring them lots of food. I'd leave them a bag of frozen dumplings and steamed buns in a hole in the snow, and it would all be eaten by the second day. Then they would say to me, Guang Yi, it's snowing too much, I can't find that bag of food. And I would reply, Okay, then find it in summer. I'd also ask, What else do you need? And one man said, Frozen biscuits. So the next time I went up, I would make sure to bring enough. Of Horses and Men Their work looks easy. It's the same every day. They wake up at 3.30 in the morning to eat and head up the mountain at 4.30. Before the sun is up, they would lead their horses up the mountain and use a sledge to bring the timber down to where the trucks can reach. They make the trip twice a day. There is division of labor. A woodcutter uses a chainsaw to fell the trees. Then there are normally two people to a sledge. One person leads the horse, the other loads the sleigh. The income from each day is calculated according to the amount of timber transported. One cubic meter of timber is around 50 RMB. If you brought down three cubic meters of wood in a day, they called it three heads. That's 50 kwai for the person who leads the horse, and 50 for the sledge loader, and 50 for the horse rental station because renting out the horse is a risk, too. Editor's note. Two people typically bring each load of timber down the mountain. Each horse pulls three or four pieces of timber of about two cubic meters. The total weight is around three tons. Going down the slope, the momentum is extreme, and it is exceedingly dangerous for both the humans and the horses. End of editor's note. That winter... Six horses died of exhaustion. A horse died on the way down the mountain after we had been up there for around two weeks. It left me shaken. It was snowing lightly then. In my movie, there's a scene where the horse is just lying there quietly, like it is at a funeral. A dozen people dragged that horse a short way from the shack and then started to skin it. Another time, I had prepared to spend a night on the mountain and filmed the loggers waking up and making breakfast in the morning. But in the end, I filmed too much that afternoon and my battery had run out, so I decided to return to the guest house at the forest farm at the foot of the mountain. The journey was about 10 kilometers, and I found a man named Yusun to take me. He carefully led over his mule, hitched up a sledge, lay a wooden board on top of it, and took me to a guest house run by his relatives. It snowed the whole way. I sat in the front and Yusan sat behind. We sat like that for over an hour in the freezing cold. Once the sun went down, it was impossible to see anything except for the mules behind and tail swaying back and forth in front of me. The sledge created friction with the snowy ground and made sounds of vibration in a rhythmic way. When we got to Yusan's relatives' home, they immediately started to cook. They made four dishes for me and warmed wine for Yusan. We ate and drank for over an hour. Then Yusan said he had to get back. I reminded him not to drink too much, for I was worried about him returning to the mountain alone.
but when he went outside, he found that his mule was gone. How? Its hoofprints led up the mountain, and its reins had been snapped off. I told Yusan to look for it tomorrow, but he said he couldn't. He needed the mule for work the next morning. I thought he would find his mule within the hour. But the next morning, when I went to talk to Yusan again, he said that his mule had wandered into someone else's shack. A logger had been driving a mare past when the mule was hitched. When the male mule smelled the mare's scent, it struggled free of its reins and chased the mare all the way to that shack. By the time Yusan had found his mule, led it back, and then drove back to his shack, it was already midnight. This incident made a large impact on all of the loggers. At first, they treated it as a joke, but eventually it made them all miss home. Even a horse will chase a mare to another shack, they said. A band of guys like us, staying in the mountains for a whole winter, who wouldn't miss home? At that moment, I realized they had been forced to go deep into the mountain and take up this ancient profession because they had no alternative. They were human, they missed home, but in order to survive, they could put all of that down. On the mountain, there were only people, horses, and forest. There is no hierarchy, no rich or poor, only those three lives bound together under the protection of the mountain god, struggling for all their worth. Magical Childhood Memories All of my childhood memories seem to have to do with snow. Every year it snowed from November to the end of April. Sometimes the last snow was as late as May 1st. Snow gave us never-ending troubles and freezing temperatures and made life inconvenient. In the 1990s, I discovered Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Colombian magical realist writer. In my memories, my childhood was full of magic. The state-owned forest farm where I grew up was only a kilometer from north to south. Over 400 loggers lived there. In 1937, the Japanese built a railway that crossed our forest farm from south to north. On each side of the railroad tracks, there were houses made of mud and grass, with thatched roofs and logs propping up the earthen walls. The houses had no soundproofing. There were eight or ten families to a house, and each family had less than 50 square meters to themselves. In the forest farm, the air was always filled with the sweet smell and the sound of crackling twigs set alight. The most iconic part of the forest farm was a small train. In the day, the train would putter up the mountain with the timber. The high altitude meant there was a lot of strain on that little train. In the middle of the night, I would hear the train again puttering down the mountain. The sound shook bits of dirt off the mud walls. As a child, I thought this was a treasure mountain. The timber was forever being transported down. From as far back as I can remember, the train was always hauling timber. Until I was 20, 30, or even 40 years old, it was still hauling timber. In the autumn and spring, the forest became dry, so safety standards were especially severe. We couldn't even light a fire to cook if the winds were above Category 5. The forest farm had a loudspeaker tied halfway up the fire prevention flagpole. This loudspeaker was our lifeline. It transmitted news from outside the mountain. 
Every day, that loudspeaker seemed to be bitterly cursing. I grew up amid the sound of that cursing. It cursed the U.S. imperialists and the Soviet Union, and said that the USSR had invaded four islands in the north of Japan. It cursed an Italian filmmaker, Michelangelo Antonioni. This scoundrel had made a very offensive documentary about Chinese cuisine. Later, when I started to make documentaries myself, I suddenly understood Antonioni's work. After the loudspeaker stopped cursing, my neighbor, Liu Dudu, would start. He would curse his wife and his son, and curse his neighbor's dog for not eating its shit. Then he would curse the leaders of the forest farm for how they treated him. They made him retire in his forties and gave him just eighteen kwai, wu mao, and seven fin per month. It was hard raising a family on just that, a little over two dollars. When they all finished cursing, the loudspeaker would start playing model operas. Every day they would play the Taking of Tiger Mountain, the part where Yang Zirong beats the tiger and goes up the mountain. Every day on the way to and from school, we seemed to be walking to the beat of Yang Zirong's drums. Until five thirty in the evening, commuter trucks would drive down the mountain. They were old and battered Jiafang trucks. A metal plate was attached to the front, facing the wind and snow, and they carried home over one hundred loggers who had finished work for the day. In the dark, while the loudspeaker played music from Tiger Mountain, over one hundred pairs of frozen and stiff rubber-soled shoes crunched across the snow together. They seemed to be walking in time to the music. While behind them, the trucks lit them up with their headlights. It was a mystical and incredibly thrilling sight. Occasionally, someone would shout something, but with no meaning in particular. Maybe it was because they were tired and hungry after a day of work, and then they had to ride in the truck for over an hour. They were frozen so stiff that they couldn't even open their mouths. And would have to first exercise their jaws before they could go home and eat. Sometimes, the electricity would suddenly cut off, and they wouldn't know which direction to walk in. So they would stop and look at the loudspeaker. Their steps would become messy, listless, and sapped of energy. The loudspeaker played every day. At five thirty in the morning, an announcer would say. Forest Farm Radio is now starting its first broadcast. That voice was a signal for the wives of the loggers to get up and make breakfast for their husbands. It took an hour to gather the firewood, get the pot up to boil, and cook the rice. The loggers brought their lunch up the mountain. One winter, the broadcast went on as usual until one morning, the loudspeaker said. Forest Farm Radio is now starting its first broadcast, and a big yellow dog appeared out of nowhere and began howling like a wolf at the flagpole. After this, whenever the broadcast started, the dog would bark on cue. Everyone thought it was very strange. In the work shack, there was a man called Mad Jul, who would often be sharpening a broad axe. He would stand on the mountain or in the village and shout curses. In the middle of winter, he would take off his cotton-padded jacket and shout, bare-chested. When this happened, everyone locked their doors and windows. It was very frightening. 
Mad Jewel would occasionally come to his senses. When he saw the dog howling, he said, There will be an accident. There will be an accident. Everyone said, Lin Biao has already fallen to his death. How could there be any accident bigger than this? My neighbor's third uncle was the father of the radio announcer. He also thought it was strange that whenever his daughter shouted over the radio, the dog would howl. He got scared, grabbed a stick, and went about the whole village chasing the dog. Eventually, the dog would run away when it saw him coming, and come back when he left. Later, he got a worn-out padded jacket, took a pot of alcohol, and sat underneath the flagpole, and draped the jacket over the dog. That winter, there was a lot of snow and a lot of accidents. The old madman had spoken the truth. Just before the new year, a logger had an accident on the mountain and died. While trying to save him, another worker fell from the truck and died too. That was a sad day. Old Bachelors in the Shack In those days, children ran wild, not like today when their parents accompanied them everywhere. Back then, the public order was excellent, and there weren't as many problems as today. An old logger became my teacher after he came down from the mountain, and I grew up listening to his thick Shandong dialect. After school, I didn't have any homework to do, so the old logger's shack was my favorite hunt. The shack was built by the logging company. It was a big workshop of 30 to 50 meters, with a corridor running along the northern side and 10 or so rooms facing south, where there was the best sunlight. In each room, there was a kong on either side. When I was little, going into the room felt like falling into a pit. I would enter with a thump. At that time, we had mud floors, so whenever the floor was swept, a bit of dirt would be pushed out of the room. Year after year, the floor would lose half an inch in height compared to the corridor. When I was just around ten years old, the Kong came up to my chest, so climbing up was a real struggle. A lot of old bachelors slept there, bare-chested, with a quilt draped around their shoulders. Above them hung a 200-kilowatt light bulb filled with fly droppings and covered in cobwebs. At that time, under the planned economy, electricity in the forest farm was free, so no one cared if you used lots of big light bulbs. Everyone lived there for free. The old loggers loved to tell us stories. They didn't have any children, so they got excited whenever they saw a group of kids coming to visit, and told us some action-packed yarns about their early years in the remote mountain forests, such as when a gang of bandits brought them supplies, or when they married a fox spirit that turned into a woman. Some of these were folk tales. Some were real. These bachelors were mostly old loggers who had come to the forest farm during the time of the puppet regime in Manchuria. A few others had come to the forest in 1960 when Shandong province suffered a big famine. By 1962, there were so many of them that the forest authorities tried to send some back. No one wanted to go back. Those who stayed behind lived in the work shack and spent their whole life unmarried. In the winter, they felled trees and made money, spent it all during the summer, and started over the next winter. Drifter Lee's Petition I remember there was a man called Petitioner Lee. 
I just know that his surname was Lee. I don't know his first name. He came to the forest farm in the 1960s. According to the rules of state-owned enterprises, he had a period of family leave after working there for two or three years, so he set off for his hometown in Shandong. Afterward, he contracted a strange illness. A mental illness, it seemed. He couldn't explain it clearly, and his family didn't know what had happened to him. Six months later, he came to his senses and came straight back to Heilongjiang, back to the Forest Bureau. In the Northeast, SOEs, state-owned enterprises, have a rule that if you don't come back to work for over three months, it is considered voluntary resignation. The Forestry Bureau told him, you've been away for six months already, so according to our rules, you've already been struck off. Lee kept explaining, I was sick, I don't know what happened, I didn't even know how much time had passed. He was an honest person and had little education. He was about 175 centimeters tall, and in the 60s, he was only around 20 years old. The forest farm couldn't help him, so they reported the problem to the Forestry Bureau. Petitioner Lee could only live in the work shack. Luckily, they still let him eat in the canteen. In the mountain, people were naturally kind. Rules are rules, but there was still empathy. After all, he was a state forest farm worker. He was different from those drifters who came to the Northeast later. Petitioning was a new kind of life for Lee. He changed from a forest worker into a drifter. In the winter, he went up the mountain to hunt. At that time, there was lots of game to hunt. Red deer, Siberian roe deer, wild boars, black bears, and even Siberian tigers. The most valuable was mink fur, which we call big fur. Nowadays, it's a luxury product. Back then, one pelt of big fur would sell for over 70 kwai, the same as a month's salary for a forest worker, about $10. In the summer, Lee would dig for ginseng and make herbal medicine. To win justice for himself, he went to the Forestry Bureau endlessly to lodge complaints. Our forest farm was 80 kilometers from the Forestry Bureau by train, and he went countless times every year. He was too ashamed to sit in the seats on the train, so each time he would squat in the corner and take out dried tobacco to smoke. When he first started petitioning, he had some written evidence, but his case became more and more hopeless as time went on and his illness got worse and worse. He couldn't say anything clearly, but just squatted at the bureau every time he went. At lunch, the staff would tell him that they were going off work, and he would pick up his bag and go, then return in the afternoon. After he had squatted for two or three days and had run out of hope, he would ride the train back to the forest farm. He petitioned his whole life, until even his real name was forgotten, and he was just left with this nickname. At the beginning of the 1980s, I was in love with painting. I had painted almost everyone in the forest farm already, and thought that the petitioner would be an ideal model. He could sit for hours without moving. He was from my father's generation, so I called him Uncle Lee. I was always very respectful toward him. He almost never replied to anything you asked him, but just smiled. By the time he was around 50, there were fewer wild animals on the mountain, and less ginseng, too. So he changed to planting milk vetch root, 
Huang Qi, a kind of medicinal ingredient. The herb took two or three years to grow, and it was only about as wide as your finger, an inch long. Once processed, you could sell it, and in the autumn, you could sell the Huang Qi seeds, too. You could earn an income all year round. One day, in around 1985, some people saw him burning a lot of paper behind the work shack. They asked him, Petitioner, your family isn't here. Who are you burning paper for? He didn't say anything, and everyone felt it was very strange. On the second day, he disappeared. Everyone thought he'd gone up the mountain, but by the third day he was still nowhere to be found. Some people informed the forest farm authorities, but he wasn't on the regular payroll. If he was gone, they wouldn't bother looking for him. A week or two later, someone found a rotting corpse a few kilometers downstream. They suspected it was the petitioner, so some kind-hearted people brought his body into the river bank and buried him. He disappeared the same he lived. No one paid any attention to him. But after the petitioner died, something happened that moved me very deeply. In the spring, the Huangti he had planted covered the whole mountain. When the wind blew, the petals floated up to the sky as far as the eye could see, and the cuckoos would sing. Petitioner Li had been dead for many years, but he wasn't gone. When the cuckoos came, it was as if the petitioner had returned. Mad Jewel's Letter Mad Jewel wasn't really mad. Back in his village, he was a teacher in a private school, and he took a fancy to the daughter of one of his colleagues. At that time, private school teachers didn't have much status. They weren't considered public servants, just temporary employees. He and that girl fell in love, but the girl's father was a cadre in the commune, and he didn't approve of the relationship. He said that a private school teacher's status was uncertain, and he wanted his daughter to have a better future. The woman's father asked teacher Jewel to become a public employee, and then he'd reconsider. That was in 1960, and teacher Jewel couldn't get a position like that in Shandong, so he joined the migration to the northeast and arrived at our forest farm in Heilongjiang. Now he was officially working for the state, and his status rose in his hometown. He and the girl wrote often to each other. At that time, transportation was rudimentary, and sending a letter from Shandong to our farm took a few days. The farm's postal service became the most important part of Zhu's life. Zhu would often follow the postman to the mailroom and go through the mail for his letter. He thought... Now that he was a state employee, he could soon bring the woman he loved to the forest farm, and everything in his life would come together. But two years later, just when he and his partner were discussing marriage, the forest farm started to lay off workers and send them home. Jewel was one of them. For him, this was a terrible blow. Not only was his forest worker status gone, but his love story was over. He couldn't bear it. He went mad. After he went mad, he followed the postman every day, always thinking there was a letter for him in the mailbag. When it first started, he would go to the canteen every month and eat three meals. Later, when he ran out of money, he started to have two meals. Eventually, he couldn't even afford one meal, so he would randomly get a bite wherever he could. Like Petitioner Lee, he didn't want to go home. 
He hunted in the winter and dug for jinxing in the summer, practicing the oldest professions in the land. In my earliest memories, he was around 40 years old with a head of long white hair. In his lucid moments, he was just like a healthy person. By 1976, when I was already 15 or 16 years old, you could still see him following the postman around. After the postal workers got off work, he would go to the mailroom, open the door, and rifle through the letters. One time, he found a copy of the People's Daily and saw the headline, Great Leader, Great Teacher, Great Commander-in-Chief, Great Helmsman Chairman Mao Zedong has passed away. The shock brought him to his senses in an instant. From the beginning of the 60s until 1976, for over 10 years, everything had been a muddle for him. But the one thing he was always certain of was that his lover's letter was in the postman's bag. Forest Under Siege In the mid-80s, all of China started to reform and open up for business, but our forest farm was already struggling to catch up. We didn't know what business was. I remember one time in 1985, I walked across three villages to take the train to Harbin, then traveled from Harbin to Daqing. The person sitting opposite me had taken out a wallet with a dozen 50 yuan notes inside. It looked like there were at least 100 notes in that pile or 5,000 yen. I don't know why, but he kept counting his money. I was shocked. At that time, I earned 40 or 50 kwai a month, and my dad only got around 100. Combined, we couldn't make that much money even if we worked for years. The world had already changed, and our mountain was getting left behind. Nature's resources had been used up, and in some places, there were no trees to fell. So, forest workers faced layoffs and cuts to their salary. At that time, my dad's earnings were less than 200 yuan a month. He started working for the Forestry Bureau in 1949 and retired in 1989 at the age of 69. He saw the rise and fall of the forest with his own eyes. Sadly, he passed away in 1992, just as reform and opening up began to benefit every family. His death left a dark shadow on my heart. He worked at the forest farm his old life, and he was still a cadre. Until the end, he didn't get one cent of his medical expenses reimbursed. He didn't know how to. The forest was under more and more strain every year. There used to be over 300 permanent staff in our farm, but by the 21st century there were reportedly just 19 left. Practically just the factory director, vice director, union chairman, and the bookkeeper. I don't know where the rest of the people went. Editor's note. The forest farm's glory days lasted over 20 years, and it struggled on for another 20 years. After Guangyi's documentary, Timber Gang, was finished, the era of tree felling also ended. Some people went to the city to work. Others went deep into the mountains to hunt, to live like Robinson Crusoe. In 2010, Heilongjiang started to develop tourism, and the families in the forest farm began to live off the tourists. They set up guest houses and restaurants for visitors from cities far away. Though initially suspicious of tourism, the mountain folks have now embraced urbanization. For them, 
the old way of life in the forest was over. End of editor's note. I love the people of my hometown. They are kind and industrious. They create warmth and human affection out on that icy land and help each other get through the cold days. It is now over 30 years since I've left home, and every time I return, there is less of that older generation left. But when I meet their descendants, we are still like family, just like family. Translated by Sam Davies. <laughs>